So we are towards the end of the book of Judges now, and the goal is in the next, I suppose, couple of weeks to finish up the book. Um, although, admittedly, this section, verse uh, chapter 17, chapter 18, are going to take us probably two to three weeks to get through, just because there's a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, and it gives me additional time for chapters 19, 20, and 21, which, if you know the book of Judges, you might know why I'm delaying in getting there. So... Um, <laughs> We're going to be just in chapter 17 tonight, so I'm going to read that section, those verses, uh, and then we're going to kind of just walk through it and ask a couple of questions, namely, uh, what does this have to do with us and how does it it matter for our our lives today? So I'm going to read starting in uh, verse 1 of chapter 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand and for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother... His mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. So that is all of chapter 17. Uh, You might notice I'm stopping at chapter 17. This story, this whole set of narratives actually goes through chapter 18. And we'll get there through the whole story. But there's so much going on in the first chapter, so much to set up that we won't really have time, at least not in 20 minutes, to get through all of that. The reading alone would take us like five or six minutes. So uh, we're going to stop there. And then we're going to try to pick up on some early themes and hopefully carry that over into next week and the following weeks because the story is really one unified whole, and it'd be wrong for us to stop here, try to apply without really paying attention to what happens later on. So with that being said, the the main idea for this whole section, verse uh, chapter 17 and 18, is the idea of religious apostasy. That's kind of the theme of the study that we're going to be going over these next uh, couple weeks, as long as it takes us uh, to get through these verses. Um, Chapter 17, what we read tonight, uh, starts off the idea of religious apostasy by introducing us not to a judge in Israel, As a matter of fact, that whole section of the story of Judges is kind of behind us. And now it's introducing us to what we would call the internal, the private life of the Israelites. 
And it's unclear time-wise whether this happens at the start of the book of Judges chronologically or this is happening after Samson's reign. It's completely unclear where this takes place. All we know is that it did happen and that the author of Judges, the narrator, felt it important to include this section. Now, the number one rule of the book of Judges when you're interpreting it is you have to always ask the question, why would the narrator include this section? What is he trying to communicate to a reader? And you're asking the question, uh, what is the narrator telling me is true? Because we've, ta we've talked before about one of the difficulties of interpreting narrative in scripture is the difficulty of wanting to trust all the characters and whatever they say, and we can't trust all the characters and whatever they say, and that's gonna become clear here. Because if you trust all the characters, there's very conflicting accounts about what's going on, right? If you trust the, the Levite, if you trust uh, Micah, if you trust Micah's mother, all of them are gonna give different and conflicting accounts according to the rest of scripture. So we have to trust the narrator and let the characters kind of, you know, be at play in how we understand things, but they're not determining ultimate truth of Scripture. So this section is included and it's profitable, but that doesn't mean that everything every character says is, is true Scripture from God and that we must believe it. Um, as a matter of fact, much of what they say is out of line or out of step with what God has elsewhere said in His Word. So the first uh, thing to pay attention to is this section hits the ground running, uh, and by the end of verse 2, you'll notice that so far, we have uh, an admission of a robbery, an admission of like a family robbery, the return and confession of, of the money, like confessing that the, the son stole the money from his mom and he gives it to her and then she forgives him and then gives him back part of the money so he can make a false God. Now, if you want to keep track of how many laws were just violated from the Ten Commandments, you can try to do that. But honor your father and mother, which is not happening when he steals the money. You shall not steal. That's a law that's violated there. You shall not make a carved image. There's a third law that's been violated. All of that, and possibly the taking of the name of the Lord in vain, when the mother blesses her son and then commissions him to go build a, a false statue. So you have of the Ten Commandments, as, about as many as you can violate in a couple of verses, all happening at the same time. Now, that's going to become even worse because no one in the narrative catches this as a problem. And you'll see this because Micah tells his mom that he stole the money. There's no punishment for him for having stolen the money. In fact, she blesses him to make a false god. And he takes her, she takes him giving the money back to her as a sign of God's providence to her. And she decides she's going to take this providence and pass it back along to her son. And then he's going to take that as a sign that he should, in fact, do what she's commissioning him to do. And there's this kind of really weird evidence where they're allowing their circumstances or the happenings of their life to dictate what they should or should not do, not what they know is true in the law of God. And I'm going to look at uh, just a couple of verses that would, that would point that out um, when we get later. Uh, we're going to have to use other texts besides this one to tell us about the right or wrong of the morality of this text because the narrative is confusing. So uh, she blesses him. She says, blessed be my son by the Lord. And then in verse 3, he restores the money to her. She says, I, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. And notice why she dedicates it to the Lord. And this is strange. To make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So she, she only gives him the money essentially on the condition that he'll make a carved image. And so uh, when he restored the money to his mother, she took the money. She gives it to a silversmith. The silversmith makes a carved image. And then that carved image gets put into the house of Micah. And to see all of what's going wrong here, there's a, a, a section I want you to turn to in scripture, which is Exodus chapter 20. And the language of the judges is actually drawing our eyes back to that section. 
Exodus chapter 20, and we'll be looking uh, at verse 4. And the, the language that's used, I just want to remind you of the language that we just read in Judges. Uh, it, it gets repeated twice. Uh, first, it says, made it into a carved image and a metal image. And uh, earlier, it says that to make a carved image and a metal image. So in verse 3 and in verse 4, it repeats that language. And then I want you to, to hear uh, the language of Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So you'll notice the the language of carved image. The author of Judges is telling us it's a carved image, telling us that Micah and his mom seem to be okay with the creation of a carved image. But we, as a reader of Scripture, would have to say, no, 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 that can't be true because Elsewhere, God from his own mouth has said, you cannot do this. Do not make a carved image of any likeness. Don't do that. And certainly don't accredit it to me for worship. And so uh, the, the narrator in Judges is simply telling us that these events happened. And then uh, we're reading verse 5 of Judges uh, 17. And the man Micah had a shrine. Uh, literally, he, he had a house of God, a, a house of worship for God. Um, and in this shrine, he has made an ephod, which we saw Gideon do, remember, earlier in the book of Judges. And uh, he has household gods set up in this shrine, which are essentially other carved images, likely to other pagan deities, not to Yahweh, to other household gods. So he's adding the image made for Yahweh into his collection of other household gods. And we see that he ordained one of his sons to, became, to become his priest. Now, I won't have you turn there, but in Exodus 40... And in Exodus 17, we're told only Levites can be priests. You cannot just go ahead and take your youngest son or your oldest son or whatever and make them a priest. There has to be a right succession of the priesthood only through the line of Aaron. And so these are the Levites. They've been set aside for this. But Micah doesn't care. So he makes his oldest son a priest. Or he makes one of his sons a priest. He actually says that he ordained him or anointed him to be priest. And then... uh, the clarifying statement, the thing that helps us make sense of all that we've just read, right? Five verses of essentially chaos. And then in uh, verse six, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now you've heard that elsewhere in Judges in the opening chapters. Now the author is inserting his commentary into what's happening. And he's saying, if you want an explanation for everything that you just read, if you want an explanation for how this story is unfolding, here's the explanation. There is no king in Israel. Everyone has done what is right in their own eyes. And then we have to ask the question, why would the author of Judges include this explanatory phrase? Why is he including this story? Well, if you've been following Judges for 16 chapters, he's been laying out the case for uh, essentially the need of Israel to be faithful to Yahweh, the need to be faithful to God. And for a number of those chapters, really uh, chapter 3 on through chapter 16, which we just finished, he's been laying out the case of a need for a judge that the judge is a a God-fearer and the judge will lead the Israelite people back towards Yahweh. So we know that we need a good judge. The problem is there are no good judges in the book of Judges. We have at best kind of faithful judges, but none of them are the judge that we're looking for, the the king who's going to be faithful. And so you might be tempted by the end of 16 chapters to say, well, the other option is not to follow any one judge because they are morally culpable. A better option would be to let everyone do what they can do and let them try to be faithful to Yahweh on their own terms, and that might be another option, maybe a good option for faithfulness to Yahweh. 
So the author of Judges is now telling us, well, let's explore what it looks like for us not to worship, not to follow one judge, one leader. Let's explore what it looks like if we have no leaders. What will Israel look like in such a case? And here he gives us the example of essentially chaos. And then he says, because there's no king in Israel and everyone is simply doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, there's not a problem with Israel having a king. There's a problem we'll see in 1 Samuel later uh, in, in Scripture. The unfolding of the narrative is that Israel wants a king in the wrong kind of way. They want a king who is a, a manly king, not a king who's a holy king, who fears God. That's the problem with Israel wanting a king, not that they want a king. Because in Deuteronomy 17, Israel is told that they're going to have a king. The king needs to fear God, and that's, a, that's not a bad thing for Israel. And so the author of Judges is not trying to leave us with the impression that following one leader is a bad thing. He's leaving us with the impression that following the wrong leader, a leader who doesn't fear God, is a bad thing. But it's also way worse to just leave it up to every person. To have every person doing their own thing is not a guarantee that additional faithfulness will happen. And then he's going to kind of explain further the, the depths to which this, this uh, sin goes. He tells us about a young man from Bethlehem in Judah. This man is told to be a Levite. Now, you might be asking, how can someone who's from the tribe of Judah be a Levite? It's an easy answer. In the book of Judges, remember, they're settled into the promised land. And we're told in scripture earlier that the Levites don't have any allotted land in the promised land. So the Levites are living in whatever territory will host them. And so it's not a wonder to us that this man is from Judah or from Judah's territory. Because although he's a Levite, the Levites have no territory. So he has to be from somewhere. So he's a Levite from Judah. It's not someone who's from Judah who also happens to be a Levite. Because you can only be a Levite if you're from the house of Aaron. So he's descendant of Aaron, but he happens to live in Judah. And he's traveling around. He travels by where Micah is. He goes to Micah and Micah goes, oh, you know what? Seems right in my eyes. This is now a Levite. I can ordain him for more official ministry. And he can serve in my household, my ephod, and and worship here. And you would expect, what we would expect a Levite to do is say, no, no, no. Worship is only in the temple. Worship is in one location towards God. We have to follow, according to God's statutes, what we're supposed to do. But instead what happens is he says, the job and money are worth it. I will be your priest. And so the Levite is now ordained by Micah and essentially assists him in his personal sacrificial uh, house of worship, if you will. And so Micah uh, ordains the Levite. The young man becomes his priest. And then uh, notice what Micah says in verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. And so you have almost a superstitious nature to Micah's worship where he says, if I do the outward things close enough, not perfectly, right? Because he's not close to perfect. But if I do close enough, I have a Levite. I'm generally worshiping Yahweh. Surely Yahweh will bless me. He'll understand my heart. He'll understand that I'm being faithful. Uh, Now, we're not supposed to trust that because this is a character saying it, not the narrator. This is not narrator commentary. It's put in quotations, right? So this is Micah's opinion. That does not mean that what Micah said is true. And what becomes clear if we go into chapter 18, which we'll do next week, this is not true. The Lord does not bless Micah. In fact, Micah gets robbed blind and the Levite joins the people who rob Micah blind. So, but we'll get there next week. So what does chapter 17 have for us today uh, who, are, who are reading this text? You know, we're not Israelites. We don't live in the promised land. We don't have their commission. What are we going to pick up from these verses? Well, the descent of Israel into chaos starts here with religious apostasy. That's kind of the first thing I laid out. And now we might be tempted to say, oh, the religious apostasy, not so bad. It, it maybe leads to aberrant worship, but not super dangerous. But what the author of Judges is going to lay out for us is that the religious apostasy sets the stage for the later moral atrocities that are going to happen. 
when you abandon faithful worship of God, you are on a sliding slope to moral insanity. And if you, if you want to make sense of how the moral insanity happens, you have to first understand that this is the first domino that falls. False worship of God, false understanding of who God is, allows literally anyone to participate in any act of sin. This is going to become clear later in the book of Judges. So to understand what happens then, we have to understand here that it started with religious apostasy. Now we can see that apostasy in a bunch of lights, and we might dwell on Israel's apostasy, but their apostasy is not all that different from things that happen today. The first thing that they do, you'll notice here in the text, is they are interpreting their experience and God's, let's say, providence on their life as a blessing from God, as, a, as an okay to do whatever they want to do. So, for example, Micah's mom gets money back. She says, this is good. I can now do whatever I want because God's favor is on me, even though it's her son who stole the money is giving it back to her. Then she gives money to her son, and he says, oh, what a blessing. I will take this, and I will, you know, I will put it in my household gods. And so Micah is not concerned at all about his sin because they've taken their experience, they've elevated high, and they've completely abandoned any interpretive lens of Scripture. Now, what Scripture do they have? They have the Torah. They have the Ten Commandments. Surely they know the Ten Commandments, that they shouldn't be doing much of what's laid out in this text. But you'll notice they're not concerned about that. So they've abandoned a good understanding of how do we come to truth, and they've, they've, they've substituted that for their experience. So that's the first thing that happens in religious apostasy. There's no objective truth, simply what I think is right. And the, the author comments, there's no king. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. This starts with worship. It's going to lead to moral insanity, but it started with worship. Then you'll notice false worship of God doesn't just stop at false image worship. It, it navigates or migrates into a false worship of the character of God. So they falsely worship images, and we might say, okay, I see that that's wrong, but maybe not such a big deal. Well, if you're worshiping an image, the danger is you're worshiping a false picture of who God is. That's the real danger in image worship. The living God is not to be depicted. And the reason is because you're going to get a distorted view, no matter how close you try, how beautiful of an image you make, you're going to get a distorted view about the one true God. So well, how does that distorted view affect a society? Well, a distorted view of God, a distorted view of his morality is going to lead to a distorted practice of morality, an abandonment of true morality. So we don't want to in any way distort worship of the one true God. And so we see here, there's an image worship, household gods. These are people who do not care the character of God. They treat him more like a pagan deity. He's very much approving of whatever they want him to be approving of. And we might not see it dangerous when it comes to worship, but that slippery slope leads to a sign-off on uh, morality, that they're not going to say he's concerned about morality either because we've already said he doesn't care about worship. Why we sh should we bother listening to him on other things? And so they've abandoned uh, that source of truth. And then you'll notice the last piece is if you can get religious sign-off on whatever you're doing, then this is another, another uh, plus for you to think you're doing the right thing. Just because a religious leader signs off on what they're doing does not make it okay. But Micah thinks that because a Levite signed off on what he's doing, and he is now providing housing for this Levite, that God's going to approve of whatever's happening. We see this as well in culture, where someone will take a position that's against the law of God, and all they'll get is a couple of religious leaders to say, yeah, my book teaches that, or yeah, Christians don't have a problem with that, or yeah, we're good with that. And they will get this as a, almost a, a means of approval for whatever they're ushering in. But just because a religious leader says, yes, it's okay, does not make it so. And we see this here because just because a Levite comes in and says, I'll help you with your worship, does not mean that this is good worship. So don't trust religious leaders. They are fallible people. What is the only source that we can trust? The only thing that's a steadfast rock of truth is the law of God, his personal revealed word for us. That's true for the Israelites here. 
That's also true for Christians today because all those same things that go wrong for Israel are all the same things that happen for us when we see culture shift, when we see an understanding of God shift. All of that is setting up a downstream fall in society. And we might not hear the alarm bells going off when it's simply a worship shift, but it's setting up something terrible. And if we're concerned about the terrible thing, we have to recognize that, well, false worship of God is, is simply just as bad. Scripture tells us it's just as bad. But, and it's telling us that if we, if we abandon that, we might not think of it as dangerous, but it's going to set up a fall way later that's going to be way worse, and it's going to have a much more detrimental impact on society. And so that's what the narrator is setting up for us. Um, I'll stop there because I'm probably over time already. But um, next week we will pick up a chapter 18 and we'll start to see how more of this kind of unravels. Um, so let me just close in a word of prayer and then we'll get to some discussion. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you especially for the difficult texts that um, challenge us, that push us, that um, make us question morality and um, whether scripture really is profitable in all of its ways. Um, Lord, we thank you for the blessing of wrestling with these kinds of texts. And would you give us grace as we, as we do that now, um, as we explore the, the depths of uh, how this applies, uh, as we examine our own lives in, in relation to this. Um, would you correct us? Would you help us? Would you train us uh, through your spirit? Um, and would you give us grace as we try to, uh, try to wrestle with um, all that's present here in these verses? Lord, we ask for your grace. In your name, amen.